Stanley Horowitz, you are a theologian, you're from America, you have been described as one of the most influential Christian thinkers in the English-speaking world, and you're here in Dublin for the launch of your book, that it's a conversation between yourself and Brian Brock from Aberdeen University. We'll talk about that and talk to Brian in a moment, but firstly for yourself, you're no stranger to Ireland, you've been here every year for many years. Can I ask you firstly about the referendum? We've, there's been a seismic shift in the way Ireland perceives itself and what it does. I was stunned. I could not believe that 68% of the Irish people voted to legalize abortion. I wondered what kind of educational formation had the Catholic Church been about that that was the result. Uh, I find it... Uh, unbelievable. And I uh, pray that um, the resulting law will um, at least have a decent conscience clause in it, because it's going to put a lot of pressure on the medical system. You are a theologian who's written about the respect from a Christian perspective of the centrality of the dignity of human life. Is that the way you would have argued had you been here in regard to this debate? No. I think the pro-choice, pro-life alternative is a disaster. That's the production of the American media to simplify an alternative. What you needed to talk about is why you're having children at all. And that's what, in America, was never really broached. I think the abortion culture in America is a vote of no confidence in ourselves. People do not believe that they have a culture and a moral sensibility worth passing on to future generations. The birth rate among whites in America is now not reproducing itself as a population. And I think that's very telling. So I think how to reframe the abortion issue as one having to do with what kind of people do you need to be to have children in a morally flourishing manner is what should have been talked about. Is there a chicken and egg there because are people voting in that way because of the way the society actually is that it is morally bankrupt in a lot of aspects so they don't feel they can bring children into it? Well it's not for me to characterize Ireland but I certainly think that's at least part of the problem in America. Why are you having children in the first place where they can consume at a higher level than you can consume? Uh, That's not happening anymore in America, by the way, that one of the challenges is going to be that children of fairly well-off folk in America are going to have trouble reproducing the wealth of their parents. And that's going to be, I think, a real challenge to American politics because 
it's going to produce an extraordinary reactionary politics, which we which may already... already happening, yeah. yeah. In Ireland, I'm wondering, given the nature of the exit interviews that were done on both sides on the yes and the no, a high percentage expressed that they were unhappy, that it wasn't a choice they made easily. They didn't feel, well, this is a clear-cut decision, say perhaps like it was in the gay marriage referendum. I must admit, I don't know if I trust those expressions of ambiguity. It seems to me uh, that it can easily be interpreted as a kind of moral saving of my commitments, but nonetheless, I'm still going to vote pro-choice. Can you talk to me about... Mm your own work regarding the whole area of pacifism and nonviolence in the Christian tradition? Well, I don't like the language of nonviolence because it's not violence. I don't like the language of pacifism because it's so passive. My way of putting it is Christians are called to peace not because we think it's a strategy to rid the world of war, But in a world of war, as faithful followers of Christ, we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent to be against war. And that means that if we are truthful in our nonviolence, we may well make the world more violent because the world does not want the order that is its violence shown up for what it is. Namely, it really is a form of violence that hides itself from itself. In what way? Because if you're well enough off, you oftentimes look very peaceful. (laughs) And so how you discover in your own life the violence that you've gotten used to is always a deep challenge. So are you referring there to violence of people who oppress other people without physical force, but who exploit them or use them as labor slaves almost or whatever? No, I was thinking more of like everyday life. Where do you find oftentimes the deepest violence? People who say they love one another. (laughs) I usually mean, I love you because I think you'll fit into my way of life. (laughs) So exactly how the coercive aspects of our lives are oftentimes missed because they're confused with love. So your vision of how we treat ourselves and treat those we love and how we treat our communities, if we really look at that from the Christian perspective, you believe that is a radical, I know we have to use the word, you don't like it, but nonviolent yeah. Stance. Have you another word that you've thought of? Because you think words are very important, don't you? I do. Uh, words are everything. I like the word peace. <laughs> I like the word discipleship. I mean, people oftentimes think you need to justify violence. I oftentimes say, have you thought about what that means for the disciples facing the crucifixion? Shouldn't they have run back to Galilee and gotten up the Galilean revolutionary force and gone back to Jerusalem and said, they're fixing to kill an innocent man. Let's liberate him through violence. Jesus didn't ask for that. 
So exactly our commitment to nonviolence as Christians has everything to do with the crucifixion, where God took on the Son what we deserved, but didn't pass the violence on. I can see that. I think where I would have difficulties, and I think where people sometimes have difficulties in, in say, something like, let's go to the Second World War. The, I'm sure you've had this a hundred times, but it is a difficult area where you say, well, do we stand, all stand up and say, march on, Hitler? What I oftentimes respond to that observation is who fought in Hitler's armies? Catholics and Lutherans who were brought up exactly on that question. I'm sure if I were that age, I would have probably gone into the army. I think it was seemed so overwhelmingly true. I'm just now trying to say, when did we ever learn to say no? <laughs> how, how do Christians learn to say no I'm not going to use military force to achieve what you're calling justice. American Christians are certainly more American than their Christianity should allow. And so I'm trying, I say, before I die, which is not that far in the future, I hope to convince every American Christian we have a problem with war. I don't care whether they're just warriors or pacifists. I just want them to know we've got a problem with war. How did we ever lose that sense that Christians have a problem with war? Yeah, I, I can understand that. I, and I see what you're saying in that regard. I suppose I, as somebody, you know, when you travel around Europe and see monuments to places where, you know, small groups of just ordinary people really brave got together in the resistance and risked their lives and were tortured to stop something that was an incredible evil that was being marched. I mean, I agree with the bigger picture that we have to look at where this comes from, why our obsession with it. But for the people who do something, like this, it's maybe sometimes easier to sit back and say, well, I won't. The, the, the issue of precedent is extremely powerful, namely, particularly if you're from the southern part of the United States, you go to war because your grandfather did, and you don't want to dishonor grandfather. Somewhere we've got to say, we can honor granddad without thinking we have to reproduce what he did or she did in terms of fighting for the defeat of the Axis powers. I mean, what a lot of people don't get is the United States only became the United States in World War One, Up until that time, you hadn't reintegrated the South. World War One became the construction of America as a country because the Southerners, who are natural-born killers... Uh, <laughs> only, so, the, only the Southerners? Uh, well, we can uh, express a special pride in it. Uh, the Southerners, as natural-born killers, were so desperate to kill, we even went and did it for the Yankees. How to say no to that is one of the uh, great challenges before us. And, of course, that has everything to do with the gun culture in America. I mean, I was a Southerner. When I was 10, I got my Roy Rogers BB gun. When I was 12, I got my 22. When I was 14, I got my 410. Uh, these are shotguns. Yeah. Uh, 410 is a shotgun. 
And you, you grow up hunting, and you learn how to use a weapon. But I can't now have a weapon in the house at all. And when you look at the present state of America, well, I suppose the one hopeful sign perhaps was the young people who started to march because of what happened to them in the school shootings. But it's certainly with your president at the moment, the issues that you're raising do not seem to be on the agenda for any deep reflection. That's, clearly it's not on the agenda. And I hope the high school kids that are saying we don't want to be exposed to these kinds of shootings, I worry that it's not going to be long-lasting. I mean, they say they want the vote, and uh, that would, should make a difference. But I don't want to be cynical, but I've seen those kinds of movements fade out too quickly. We'll move on because there's so much I want to talk to you about, but maybe this, everything you write is rooted in the person of Jesus. Right. Would you talk to me then about the importance of that? Because you, I've read somewhere that you, in your writing, it's all, the whole point is for people not to have maybe a theological appreciation at an academic or intellectual level, but rather to have an experience of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, I don't use that phrase there, an experience of Jesus. Um, um, Americans want a personal relationship with Jesus, which I think is about um, the last thing I would want. (laughs) I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I have a Jesus that comes to me through word and sacrament that makes it possible for me to be part of a people who can say to the world, you need salvation, and we're it. So the Christological center of how I think is correlative of an ecclesiological center. And I think what I'm saying is so obvious that it's not clear to me why people think it's controversial, because it seems to me what's been at the heart of the gospel from the beginning. But you don't feel a a personal connection, a personal relationship when you read Jesus and study the life and like is it possible to love a community if you don't love or have some kind of relationship with the person you say is at the centre of it? I mean Jesus just wasn't the Christ, he was Jesus as well. Well I have a, a very close relationship with many of the people that I go to church with who mediate Jesus to me. So I have that personal relationship that I just worry a little about calling it personal. It's a reality that certainly has made my life dysfunctional, and I want to make other people's lives dysfunctional. Just explain that to me, please. Well... Which reality has made your life dysfunctional? Jesus. I mean, just think about how dysfunctional the Jesuits are around this place. <laughs> I mean, what, what are they doing? Um, to be set aside to do nothing but study and to say mass. They're dysfunctional people. Like, I'm a dysfunctional. I'm an academic. I suppose it's a kind of way of saying, isn't it wonderful or not normal? <laughs> Again, you're using words in an interesting way because 
the way you use them is not the way people in ordinary discourse, when, when you say dysfunction, I think of not normal, but yeah. really not well. Or when you say personal, I think you take another take. Do you do that to disrupt and to make people think? I do it because that's the way I think, because working with words is what I do. I have a book that came out in the last few years called The Work of Theology and another book called Working with Words. And in Working with Words, I have the phrase, faith is working with words in the light of Christ. Well, that is already a misleading way to put it because it makes it sound like faith is something other than words. But faith is words, too. So learning how to talk has everything to do with being a follower of Christ. And it's interesting because there's a whole movement at the moment, a sort of a re-engagement with the apophatic tradition that's saying, you know, words are really dangerous and give up on it because once you put a word on the topic you're talking about and on God, G-D, you're already distorting the yeah, reality. They, they love to use that quote from Francis, preach and when, in, and when necessary use words. Well, that's using words, and I think the way to think about the apophatic way is silence drips off the edges of words. So you only know what it is you don't know by having tested what you know. That leads me on to Brian. Brian Brock, you're here, and to your book, which is interesting because it's called Beginnings, and maybe that process is how this works. So you talked, it was a conversation over two years with your friend. Tell me about that process then of, because that seems like a good description of doing theology that you've just spoken about. Uh, yes, my main interest was really to let people see how theology gets done. So there was a pedagogical impulse behind it. Um, people often experience a figure as dominant as as Stanley through a corpus. And because the corpus is so big, there's become canonical interpretations, which I often found very short-sighted and falsifying. So I thought, this is my chance. Let me both get Stanley to step out from behind that screen of secondary readings to show the subtlety, not least of language use that you've just displayed so so ably, but also to show where theology comes from. I mean, we're, we're always interacting with other voices to produce theological insight, but the way theology is typically presented in a lecture or in a book is a collation of quote-unquote results and that that obscures the thing that we need to be handing on to the next generation is where does the theologizing actually happen and how does that look that's a hopeful process because it could mean that even in the interview we were doing that that's a theologizing because sure. new insights are coming and there's lots of roads that open up that you can go down is, is that what you experienced as well for yourself for your own reflection and with stanley Yes, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, theology is just making sure that the language of faith, the, the basic creed, still talks to the world that we live in. Therefore, it's, it can never end. Uh, it always has to be reintegrated with common language, and it has to question common language. And it, we have to see what we, when we confess God as the creator, what does that connect to? Like, what specifically does that connect to? Stanley has been so important in showing how that might be done, that I think it's it's a shame for that not to be distilled in a way that can allow next generations to repeat it without repeating Stanley. How did you experience the process, Stanley? I experienced it as a great gift, because to have someone like Brian read you and read you so well is a wonderful thing, 
because it doesn't happen a lot. So it was a gift, and it was a, a hell of a lot of darn hard work <laughs> because Brian did the work of reading me, and I had to do the work of responding to some very hard questions that I would prefer to leave vague, but Brian didn't let me. Uh, I'm sure there's some vagueness, but and vagueness isn't always a bad thing. But I had to be clearer than oftentimes I wanted to be. So it was it was a, a great process, and I learned a lot. What, what did you learn? I was going to ask you that. Was there something that surprised you and you said, oh, I didn't think that, or that's new for me? Yeah, it's usually a connection between phrases that I hadn't thought of as being connected. For example, how to think about the implications of the care of the mentally handicapped for the explication of what it means to live peaceably. Uh, I'd thought of that before, but not as fully as I did for uh, Brian pressing me on it. So those were the kinds of connections I was... And can you just say a wee bit about that? Because I know you're one of the first theologians to write about disability and theology. A little bit about that. It's really tricky because you don't want to, quote, use the disabled to coerce people into positions that they prefer not to have. But I was fortunate enough when I lived in South Bend to be drawn into the world of the mentally disabled in a manner that I was able to make friends with many of those that we call disabled. And that opened up a world that enabled me to see that these people represent a challenge to the presumptions of modernity that we dare not miss. So that was how I got into it. And just did... Your notion of language then, was that, and the importance of words, was that challenged or expanded in terms of the dialogue that takes place with people who have mental disability? Well, um, there are many ways to carry on a conversation. Mm. Watch your hands. Mm. <laughs> and uh, the assumption that the mentally disabled can't communicate, I think, is because we haven't taken the time to listen. I wasn't making that assumption. I was more thinking about your your um, emphasis on the importance of words. words. Yeah. yeah, but that's what I meant, that work, that a gesture is a word uh, okay. oftentimes, right? Okay. Uh, I had a student named Benita Rainey who was a social worker for protective services working with the mentally disabled. And one of our wards was a young African-American. He must have been about 12, who was profoundly disabled and spent most of his life on a beanbag. You would think that he couldn't communicate, but going on rounds with Bonnie, she would come in and say, Boyce, and she would put her hand on his cheek like this, and he would just brighten up. He knew who she was, and uh, that's, that's communication. I want to let you go because I know you've just come off an aeroplane and I'm sure you're tired. A final question then for you, because I'm really interested in this whole area that you spoke about communication and word. Do you trust words? Do I trust words? You have to trust words, but you sure better 
mistrust a lot of people that use them. <laughs> Stanley Hall, was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. <laughs>